This is not the media. This is hell. During President Trump's interview with Fox News Channel's Chris Wallace this weekend, the president had a question for Wallace, and fortunately for all of us, Chris Wallace had an answer. While defending statues of that genocidal maniac, Christopher Columbus, Trump said, now they want to change 1492. Columbus discovered America. You know, we grew up, you grew up, we all did. That's what we learned. Now they want to make it the 1619 Project? Where did that come from? What does it represent? I don't even know. Wallace answered, It's slavery. In case the president is listening right now, and he should, this is God's favorite radio show. The 1619 Project is the New York Times interactive project that re-examines slavery's legacy in the United States, commemorating the 400th anniversary of the first Africans to arrive in Virginia as slaves, thus beginning the transatlantic slave trade that historian Vincent Brown said earlier this year on This Is Hell was more like a 400-year transatlantic slave war than a slave trade. There's only one slight problem with that 1619 project. It kind of ignores over 100 years of Africans being brought to the southeastern U.S. as slaves, particularly in Florida, but not by the United States. The Africans were brought by the first nation that tried to colonize the continent, and that was Spain. Spain failed in their attempt, but the British learned from their mistakes and perpetrated a far more brutal form of slavery upon Africans and indigenous people, based not on religion as Catholic Spain had done, but on race. Today we'll learn all about how slavery actually began here in the United States long before 1610, when we have the return of historian Gerald Horn, author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore's professor of African American history at the University of Houston. He has a appeared on This Is Hell twice in the past. You can find both of our interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on his name, Horn, H-O-R-N-E, both times that Gerald has appeared on our show, the books that he has discussed, his books that he has discussed, were both named best books to be discussed or featured on This Is Hell in 2018 as well as in 2019. So you should hear, you should listen to both of those interviews when you get a chance. Again, search for on horn at thisishell.com. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live, stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help out our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways to support the show. One way is by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Last Friday, we thought we would play our first ever interview with investigative reporter Greg Pallast because Greg had been on the show on Thursday's show. Uh, it was the uh, We were going to play the first interview that Greg had done with any U.S. media outlet, period, and that was with here us here on This Is Hell back in 2000. Yes, we were the first U.S. media source to report that the 2000 election had been stolen, which is quite an indictment of all other media here in the United States. But the first two interviews we did with Greg shortly after the November 2000 vote and before Bush v. Gore had been decided by the Supreme Court Uh, Those are currently missing from our archives, so we had to play the third on-air conversation we had with Greg from February 2001, which summed up everything that happened on or after Election Day 2000. 
Those missing interviews are one of the many reasons we need your support. We are currently trying to rebuild all our archives so all our past conversations can be available for you. But we can't do that without your help. Also on last week's uh, Patreon podcast, I speculated as to the reason for my tennis elbow, and it was unrelated to tennis. And I gave a talk that could easily be called Psychedelics 101. We also predicted that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot would again close down indoor seating for bars, which is exactly what she did and will happen this Friday. But you can only hear that and almost 250 other Patreon podcasts we've done so far by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon, patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, before we get to this week's question from hell, my building was the target and victim last night of criminals that in our neighborhood, in our city, have been given the unfortunate name Porch Pirates. Late last night or early this morning, they came into our foyer, which is not secure, tore open all the packages that have been dropped off, and took one of them. Alex, here are the three packages that were in the foyer. Can you guess which one was stolen? Was it a complete collection of the sheet music to all of Scott Joplin's rags? Was it a custom lawn embroidered bathrobe? Or was it a 40 pound bag of cat litter? Which one was it, Alex? I'm hoping for the Joplin. (laughs) Bathrobe, sorry, sir. Oh, what was it embroidered with? I don't know. All I saw was the receipt on the floor and the ripped open package. I have so lawn they, oh, so embroidered. They, they, could, they could they opened everything and inspected them first, and then then decided, decided which, which one they're going to take. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, it's probably more utilitarian <laughs> value out of that than uh, the sheet music or the cat letter. So uh, yeah, that's something great. Alex, what's this week's question, Mel? What will finally unite the left? What will finally, <laughs> maybe someday, finally unite the left? It'll finally unite the left. Can we get uh, Tom Frank on to t- <laughs> tell us the answer to that question? Because he'll say nothing. Not nothing as in he won't say anything. He'll say that they're... You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. This week's winner will get a This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clipping, clicking on support. Again, you can email us your answers to this week's question from Al. You can message them to us via Facebook or DM them us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Your eyewitness to grief, This Is Hell and... Today, uh, we're all stricken by grief as yesterday, Michael Brooks, host of The Michael Brooks Show, a show I was honored to be a guest on last summer in a live stage appearance we did at Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. Michael sadly has passed away from what his show's Twitter account described as a sudden medical condition. Our condolences to everyone involved in The Michael Brooks Show, all of his family and friends and all of his supporters and compatriots, his listener, all of his listeners and viewers, all of his comrades over the years. My condolences also to Brian Muir, who contributes to our show from Brazil, who had become friends with Michael and even introduced Michael to former Brazilian President Lula da Silva, which I know thrilled Michael because he was absolutely fascinated with Brazil and Lula. Without Brian, I would have never met Michael, let alone be on his show. So thanks to Brian for giving me the opportunity to meet Michael. And again, our condolences to everyone whose life 
Michael Brooks has touched. Rest in peace. Also since yesterday, as we found out that, yes, President Trump is planning on sending his shock troops to Chicago to shock us all into, I don't know, being shocked, provoked into violence, I guess. So hopefully I will be arrested and this is how we'll finally have some legitimacy, the kind of legitimacy that Michael Brooks show has that our show doesn't. By the way, Alex, I got to get Flint uh, Taylor's phone number because uh, I might need an attorney. And so might you. And we might want to look for unmarked cars out front that are rentals. It's time for listener feedback. You can send your comments, thoughts, suggestions, criticism, both constructive and destructive, to us via email. You can message it to us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter. Erica emailed us writing, longtime listener, first time email writer. I wanted to write for two reasons. First, because I have been a This Is Hell listener for almost exactly a year now. And I don't know about whether or not it's God's favorite radio show, but it sure is mine. I started listening to the show after moving to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. And we listened to your podcast as I walked around exploring my new city. As a result, the topography is stitched through in my memory with what I learned from your interviews. New thoughts, new ideas, new scholars to look into. Walking by this building or that park, snippets spring up in my memory. As a young writer and journalist, I have learned so much by listening to how you ask questions. I'm particularly grateful for the This Is Hell coverage of the pandemic, which is the sharpest commentary on this subject anywhere, bar none. Thank you very much, Erica. That kind of gave me tickles. Tingles. Tiggles? Tingles. I'm going to go with Tingles. When I uh, first read it, it's pretty amazing that someone would be walking around Kyrgyzstan and listening to the show, and it's really incredible. Erica continues, the second reason I wanted to write is because I have some interviewee recommendations if it is kosher to recommend people you know. I help edit a small leftist magazine called Hypocrite Reader, which just started publishing again after a hiatus. As I was editing some of the essays, I thought that they might be a good fit for this as hell. In particular, I think Sando Sinai's essay about reclaiming mindfulness for the radical left, Tamara Fernando's piece about British colonial pearl fisheries and the body as a site of resistance against imperial exploitation, and Alexander Wells' piece about the history of fatigue might be grounds for interesting conversations. However, I recognized that I might be biased. With best wishes and sincerest thanks to you, Alex, Jeffy, and everyone else who makes This Is Hell possible, Erica. Everybody should check out Hypocrite Reader, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. They just posted their July 2020 issue, which is called Symptoms. And we are going to get in touch with Erica about featuring writers from Hypocrite Reader on the show. Also this week, we got an email from a longtime listener who we had not heard from for a while, and we were becoming concerned. Sineta writes, hello, Chuck, and greetings from your favorite fan at Dakar, Senegal, West Africa. Long-time listener, and then lost you for a couple of years or so when you went to the cloud, and I couldn't find out how to get synced up again. Lo and behold, another Saturday rolls around, and on a lark, I put you in Google, and there was a simple play for the podcast with Greg Palace. Turns out I got, I get his emails. I'm from Florida, and had my vote stolen in 2000, absentee ballot tossed in the trash. The stars are in alignment. Okay, so I moved on to another podcast, and I'm listening to you reading letters and guest suggestions, and I have a good one for you, three actually, one week at a time, separately. Yvette Carnell, political activist and podcast journalist, Antonio Moore, Esquire and Emmy Award nominee for A Crack in the System, Sandy Doridi, a PhD in economics. These are the three leaders of the ADOS movement. 
that got the subject of reparations to the forefront and avoided at the Democratic presidential primary, primaries, ADOS stands for American Descendants of Slavery. You may remember Marianne Williamson is the only candidate that discussed it. Everyone else ran for cover. Anyway, those three, There's here's a link to info and background about ADOS. Go to ADOS101.com so you can educate yourself about it if you've never heard. It's a big thing in the black American community and it's going to get bigger. I really hope you add this first-hand source to your podcast. Everyone else you see in the mainstream media and on CNN, etc. is just piling on. ADOS were the originators of the conversation. They aren't media whores, so you won't see them all over the place. And most importantly, they have the people they're claiming to represent behind them. Thanks, Chuck. Sorry to hear about your gut. I've got some African herbal stuff over here that can help you. So now all I have to do is just go to Senegal to get my stomach fixed. Drop a note back if you want more details, and I'll always remember that 15 years ago or so, you sent me a poster from your show. I gave it to my teenage son at the time. It was a cherished memento of America. We've been here 20 plus years now. He's grown married with a child of his own, and he's still here. Take care, Sinetta. Thanks, Sonetta. It's great to hear from you again. We will definitely follow up on your guest recommendations. <clears throat> I want to know about your African herbal cure for my gut. Everybody should check out ADOS101.com to find out more about the campaign. And that wraps up listener feedback, which started in Kyrgyzstan and ended up in Senegal. You can email us, message us via Facebook, or DM us via Twitter. And if you do, we will likely read your email on air. This is hell coming up the century of slavery in the Americas before the transatlantic slave trade officially began in 1619. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The history of the transatlantic slave trade is finally getting the attention it has always deserved but never attained with establishment institutions like the New York Times offering the deep analysis of the 1619 project. That said, the African slave trade landed on the shores of what would become the United States a century earlier than 1619. Here to help us understand what we miss when we do not recognize the first century of the transatlantic slave trade returning to This Is Hell. Historian Gerald Horn is author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great having you on the show, and I'm certain that you don't know this, but in 2018, when you were on our show, the book that you discussed with us, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that book was we named as one of the best books to be discussed on This Is Hell in 2018. Then you come back on here in 2019, and you talk to us about White Supremacy Confronted. That book we named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. So you're going for a three-peat this, uh, this week here, Gerald, and I'm really looking forward to naming your book this book here, one of our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2020. Uh, you write that uh, 
it should not have been deemed surprising when in 1977, Washington's ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young, a former chief aide to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., asserted audaciously that London invented racism. Instead, the Pastor Coombe diplomat was pelted ferociously in a hailstorm of invective as he backpedaled rapidly. Actually, London had a point it did not articulate. If anything, its bastard offspring in Washington and the government the envoy represented was probably more culpable for the continuation of this pestilence as it lurked into incipient being in the 1580s in what is now North Carolina and gravitated toward a model of development that diverged from those spurred by the Ottomans in Madrid, then rebelled in 1776 to ensure this putridness would endure. But slavery dates back, and this is going to bug me just for asking you this, slavery dates back to biblical times. The Egyptians enslaved the Jews. So what would you say to someone, because I always hear that, what would you say to someone who argues slavery has been around forever and was not any kind of invention of the United States? Well, the short answer is that the slavery that comes out of North America is a different kind of slavery. That is to say, it's a racialized slavery. In fact, the journalist and author, Isabel Wilkerson, has now suggested that what we're enduring, that is to say, black people in North America, is a kind of caste racism. That is to say, caste emerging from the system you still despise in India. And what I, what I was trying to suggest in that sentence that you just quoted is that, yes, there had been slavery before 1619. In fact, there was slavery in what is now the Carolinas as early as the 1520s. And there had been slavery even in the 1400s with Portugal and Spain in particular, uh, foraying into Africa and enslaving individuals. And of course, the, uh, a champion of slavery were the Ottoman Turks, the precursor of today's Turkey, who were equal opportunity enslavers. They enslaved Europeans. And look at the history of Albania and Bosnia and Serbia, for example. They enslaved Africans as well. But one of the differences between slavery before North American slavery is that if you look at the coloration, if I can use that term, of the ruling elite in Saudi Arabia, for example, you'll find many dark-skinned individuals who are part of the elite, some of the richest people in that country. Recall Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia, known as Bandar Bush, during the era of U.S. President George W. Bush because they were so close. Uh, he was the US, Saudi ambassador to the United States, uh, his private plane was painted in the colors of the Dallas Cowboys, silver and blue. But until recently, black people in the United States were not allowed to rise to the highest level. And that has to do quite a bit with the racialized slavery that obtained in North America. One of the things I was just thinking about that comes up in your book is how frightened Europeans were of becoming Ottoman slaves, how the Ottomans were just across from the, of the Mediterranean from places like France and Spain, and they were very concerned that somehow they were going to become slaves as well, because as you were pointing out, the Ottomans were equal opportunity slaveholders. They weren't just holding people who were based on one race or based on one religion. They were, ba- they were uh, equal opportunity slaveholders. So if the Europeans were so frightened, this is something I've always wondered. 
If they were so frightened of becoming slaves, what explains their willingness to impose that same frightening slavery on Africans or anyone else? Why does it always seem, and you point this out in your book, that so often people who are the slaves later become slaveholders, and that is just seemingly a natural process? Well, with regard to Africans, with regard to black people, uh, it goes back to this racialization process. That is to say, uh, number one, since this is erupting, that is to say the North American uh, slavery in the 1500s during an era of religious conflict, uh, Catholic versus Protestant, Christian versus Jewish, Christian versus Muslim, etc. And the Africans oftentimes, according to the initials enslavers, speaking of the English, they, the, the, the Africans were not viewed as human. I mean, initially they were viewed as heathens, that is to say they were not Christians, and then ultimately that morphs into their being judged to be inferior because they're black. And I think that's the short answer to a very complicated question. If slavery was religion-based and then it became race-based, that would change our identity from kind of a religious-oriented identity to a race-based identity. So to what extent is race today, that racial identity today, still defined by slavery? Well, I would say that race and racism grows out of religion and religious bigotry. As suggested, the Africans initially were thought not to be Christians, and therefore they were deemed to be worthy of enslavement. And then ultimately they were seen as being inferior because they come from a so-called inferior race, that is to say black people. But you have to understand the global context as well. You have to understand the rise of Martin Luther in 1517 and the so-called Protestant Reformation, the rebellion within Catholicism, which then begins to creep into England by the 1530s. I know that in Chicago, you recently had a well-known play that talked about how Henry VIII kept uh, killing his, or well, maybe not killing, but being responsible for the disposal of his wives because he wanted a divorce and the Catholic Church would not give it to him, which gave him impetus to uh, defect to the Protestant side. But of course, what also was happening is that the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church, fundamentally had divided the world between and amongst the Spanish and the Portuguese, which left England and London out in the cold. And so there was further material incentive to divert and defect to the Protestants. This helps to initiate a series of religious conflicts culminating in Rwanda-style massacre, particularly in France in the 1570s. But what happens is that the English cut a deal with the Muslims against the interests of the Ottoman Turks. When they liquidate the Catholics in England and in London, oftentimes the metal from the monasteries are shipped to Turkey in order to be used as materiel for the construction of weapons that could then be utilized against the Spanish Catholics. Uh, this, of course, leads to an attempt by the Spanish Catholics to overthrow Queen Elizabeth, 
uh, who is the leader of England in the 1580s, which fails. And therein you begin to see the rise of England uh, after that failed overthrow of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, meanwhile, in Africa, what's happening is that the English are not only aligning with Muslims in Turkey, they're aligning with Muslims in North Africa, particularly the Moroccan. And if you want to pinpoint the precipitous and vertiginous decline of Africa, you could do worse than go to 1591, when the Moroccans, aided by the English, helped to destabilize the Songhai Empire in central West Africa, which then has knock-on effects as the destabilization cascades southward as far south as today's Nigeria, which softens up West Africa and that part of Africa for the onrushing African slave trade, which in part helps to account for why so many black people are in North America, not least Chicago. I should also say that the English diverged from the Spanish because in a sense they had to in terms of who was going to be a settler. The Spanish had a religious qualification for settler, for, for being a settler. So therefore, in 1492, when they sponsor Columbus crossing the ocean blue, they also in, accelerate the Inquisition, where they forced their Jewish minority to convert to Catholicism on pain of torture or death. Uh, this causes many in the Jewish minority to migrate, not only to Ottoman Turkey, uh, where they were treated much better, but also to the Netherlands and also to London itself, which was ironic since England had expelled this Jewish population in 1291. So when London opens its embrace to the Iberian Jewish population and to other Jewish populations and opens its embrace to Irish Catholics, who they were also harassing and uh, engaging in depredations against, this was not necessarily because of some sort of uh, political enlightenment, which is how many historians have portrayed it. It was basically because they didn't have that many choices if they were to survive against the thrust of the Spanish Catholics. Likewise, the Spanish Catholics, because they had a religious qualification for settlement, were able to empower a thin sliver of Africans in a way that London could not. From the beginning of settlement in Cuba, for example, there was a free Negro population because these Africans professed Catholicism. And historically, once the United States, excuse me, once England moved into what they called Virginia in 1607 and then moved into what it called Georgia in the 1730s, these particular settlements that were close to Spanish Florida were harassed perpetually by black men in Spanish uniforms. In fact, one of the bloodiest slave revolts in the history of colonial North America takes place in South Carolina in 1739, in no small measure instigated by Spanish blacks in uniform. And indeed, when the United States finally ousts the Spanish from Florida, circa 1819, circa 1820, you see many of these blacks who speak Spanish fleeing in mass. Uh, to Cuba because they were trying to uh, escape what they knew to be the racial tyranny of the newly born United States of America. 
You mentioned eminent scholar Geraldine Hang, who has argued that at least in by the 13th century, England had become the first racial state in the West, referring to the pervasive anti-Judaism that then prevailed. And just as it became easier to impose an expansionist foreign policy that propelled colonialism, given the experience with the Crusades, likewise, it became easier to impose the racism that underpinned settler colonialism and slavery once anti-Judaism became official policy in London. So race works to advance an expansionist policy, leading to settler colonialism, leading to slavery, maybe further causing imperialism. How much of a threat to expansionist foreign policy is addressing race and race relations? Is that one of the reasons that we see so many different governments, so many different states around the world right now, uh, so concerned about what is happening with the uprising because when you do address race, you address the idea of expansionist foreign policy. Well, I think there's something to, to your question. And keep in mind that, as noted, the creation of race tends to grow out of religion. Uh, that is to say that the scholar Donald Matthews, who I quote, goes so far as to suggest that when you have the era of lynching in the late 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century, when it's at its zenith, uh, he espies a kind of religious orientation to lynching with regard to the burning of crosses, with regard to lynching almost seen as a sacrament of white supremacy and a sacrament of racism. And with regard to the historian that you quote, who writes about the Jewish population in England, what I go on to say is that it's remarkable how the kinds of slanders that were used to defame the Jewish population in England are easily transferred to defame the black population that's enslaved in North America. Uh, that is to say that they have allegedly a particular odor. Uh, that is to say that uh, they have uh, tails uh, and the like. And with regard to racism and capitalism, one of the points that I make in the book at hand and in previous writings is that what you basically have over the past few hundred years is a transition from religion as the axis of society, which of course had existed hundreds of years, but then with the plundering and pillaging of the Americas and the arising of the African slave trade, you begin to see race being an axis of society. Indeed, in one of my earlier books, I quote the great Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell in the 1830s suggests that when the rebels overthrew the king in London in 1776, that they basically replaced the aristocracy of lineage with the aristocracy of race, that they basically replaced the tyranny of lineage with the tyranny of racism. And so, therefore, it's not surprising that in this era of the rise of capitalism, it walks hand in glove with the rise of racism as a phenomenon. And likewise, it's not surprising that two of the first nations out of the box with regard to establishing capitalism, it's not only England, but it's also the Dutch who play a, a major role in the book at hand. And keep in mind that the Dutch not only reached the southern tip of Africa in 1652, 
leading to the formation of what eventually comes to be called the Republic of South Africa, or at one time the Union of South Africa. But recall that they take racism to perhaps its zenith with the establishment of apartheid in 1948, which finally is overthrown by Nelson Mandela and his comrades in 1994. So I think that in order to understand and effectively struggle against the kinds of inequalities that we're enduring in the United States today, it's very important to understand this history, just like if you're trying to understand the expansionist foreign policy of the United States of America, if you're trying to understand how and why it was that the United States seized a significant percentage of territory that once belonged to Mexico in the War of Aggression of 1846, and it's very important to understand how Mexicans were racialized, which then helps to justify seizing their land because they're deemed to be of a so-called inferior, quote, race, unquote. You were just mentioning how the Dutch uh, bringing of apartheid to South Africa. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the situation with the Spanish settlers in Florida, where in so many African slaves were being or so many Africans were being imported into Florida as slaves that eventually the uh, Africans outnumbered the Spanish settlers. And while I was reading that, all I could think of was this probably led to a system of, again, a system that was pre-apartheid, but a kind of apartheid system, a a minority rule system. Uh, To what extent did the Spanish failure of settling in Florida, in southeastern U.S., to what extent was that failure based on the failures of apartheid? And if it was based on the failures of apartheid, then why didn't the United States, why didn't the London settlers figure out the failures of apartheid? Well, first of all, One of the points that dawned on me as I was researching this book and writing it is that oftentimes these elites do not necessarily have a blueprint. Oftentimes they remind me of what's going on in Washington. They're sort of making it up as they go along and they're engaging in what's called the creative adaptations. For for example, when I was talking about how uh, London moved away from religion as a qualifier for settlement, To me, that wasn't necessarily pursuant to a blueprint. They basically didn't have that many alternatives if they were going to compete with the big boys, the big boys being primarily the Spanish. So in a sense, they had to move towards pan-Europeanism, which then morphs into whiteness and then morphs into white supremacy, whereas the Spanish, interestingly enough, they introduced a system in their settlement in St. Augustine, Florida, established in 1565. Uh, Oftentimes, St. Augustine builds itself as the oldest uh, continuing European settlement in North America, uh, preceding Jamestown, Virginia, by decades. Well, what's interesting about St. Augustine is that from its inception, and I would say even more so for Cuba, uh, which precedes St. Augustine in terms of uh, Spanish settlement, there is a class angle embedded in the black community. Uh, which you don't begin to see, at least dramatically, in the United States until after slavery is overthrown in 1865. And then, of course, and now in Chicago, you can see it clearly, uh, where you have uh, numerous, many, countless numbers of poor blacks, and then you have some who are not poor at all and who are doing quite well. Well, that was the system that the Spanish had with the blacks who were doing well, basically 
um, because they professed Catholicism, uh, and therefore they were not heathen. Now, keep in mind as well that I think you mentioned in your introductory remarks that one of the reasons why London was able to prevail in North America was because the indigenous population oftentimes allied with the black population to chase out the Spanish. For example, as early as the 1820s, excuse me, the 1520s, the Spanish from their perch in Santo Domingo had sailed to what is now South Carolina to establish a settlement. But the Africans, the enslaved Africans on board, once they landed, defected to the Native American side and chased the Spanish back to uh, the Caribbean. Even after St. Augustine is established in 1565, the Spanish are very wary, understandably, about England's plans to settle in Roanoke in the 1580s, in what is now called the Carolinas. And certainly by the time that England established a foothold in what they call Virginia, in 1607, Virginia, of course, supposedly named after the supposed Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth. The Spanish wanted to do something about that. They could see what was going on, but they were tied down by these exhaustive battles with the indigenous population of Florida, oftentimes allying with the black population of Florida. And so, therefore, they were not able to do anything about destabilizing this English settlement in 1607 in Virginia. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about how, despite the fact that Spain had the first mover's advantage, after all, they sponsored Columbus. After all, as noted, they had tried to establish a settlement in the Carolinas by the 1520s. London, in a sense, had a second mover's advantage. <laughs> what I mean is, they could wait until the Spanish were exhausted in their interminable battle with the indigenous population and the Africans in North America. And that led these combatants to weaken each other to the point where London could then glide into what they call Virginia in 1607. And that's one of the reasons why we're today in North America speaking English and not Spanish. By the way, I just want to tell you, again, this is an incredible book, and I am betting it's going to be named as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show this year. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn. He is author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is Gerald's third appearance here on This Is Hell, and you can go to our website, thisishell.com, and just search on Gerald's name, Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and you will be able to find our all of our interviews with Gerald. You write about the seeds of the apocalypse, which led to the foregoing uh, slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, the precursors of capitalism, planted in the long 16th century, roughly 1492 to 1607, which eventuated in what is euphemistically termed modernity, a process that reached its apogee in North America. So did slavery, white supremacy, and settler colonialism and the precursors of capitalism cause capitalism? Or did capitalism cause slavery, white supremacy, and settler colonialism and the precursors of capitalism? Because I, what, how, do we, how do we view the world differently when we understand that capitalism wasn't before slavery and white supremacy and settler colonialism, but was an outgrowth of those processes? 
Well, I think it helps to provide a roadmap in terms of trying to replace the kind of rapacious capitalism we are now enduring in the United States with a more humane system. Um, and, I, and I do mean the kind of rapacious capitalism that we have in the United States, because, of course, it's this kind of rapacious capitalism that we have in the United States that has basically eroded the possibility of having a sustainable public health care system that, have, that would have been possible, been able to arrest the spreading of this pandemic uh, that bids fair to kill hundreds of thousands of U.S. individuals. Uh, it's the kind of uh, white supremacy that undergirds this system of capitalism in the United States that also helps to explain why it is that people of African descent in particular have been devastated so ferociously by this pandemic, uh, not necessarily because of their alleged pre-existing conditions, although I'm sure that is a factor, that is to say high blood pressure, diabetes at all, but also because these are workers who are grouped at the bottom of society. Uh, that is to say, these are workers in nursing home facilities, uh, stacking the shelves of grocery stores, uh, serving food in hospital cafeterias, etc. So I think it's fair to say that capitalism itself arises from the seeds planted by slavery and white supremacy in particular, because keep in mind that in order to transport enslaved Africans across the Atlantic, and in order to transport European settlers across the Atlantic, that presupposes a shipbuilding industry, which presupposes workers who are getting wages and then in a so-called virtuous circle, using those wages to buy goods, which are then produced by other workers. Keep in mind as well that in order to guard against frequent slave revolts, which happened repetitively on slave ships, you needed an insurance industry so that those who had invested in those ill-fated voyages could be made whole. And that helps to generate surplus capital, which could then be used to invest in other industries and also could be used to develop a banking industry, which then loans out money to other entrepreneurs. And so therein, you begin to see the roots of capitalism. Keep in mind that, as I said in my 17th century book, that the African slave trade was one of the most profitable, profitable enterprises known to humankind. You could invest $1 and get a $1,700 return. There are those, not least in Chicago, I'm sure, who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit, not to mention some African they did not know. And so in order to understand this system, which we are now enduring, you have to understand its roots and its origins, just as when you go to a doctor, oftentimes a doctor will take a detailed medical history so that the doctor can make a better diagnosis and plan for treatment. That is to say, if your parents had diabetes, then your doctor may suspect that you may have the signs of diabetes and therefore the doctor will ask you questions to try to elicit whether or not you have an you know, extreme thirst or other kinds of signs for diabetes. 
and then prescribe a treatment plan. Well, likewise, if you're going to prescribe a treatment plan for this ailing patient known as the United States of America, it's very important to know the history of this ailing patient so that we can develop a more adequate and accurate treatment plan. You talk about how race erases the idea of class. Can we address racial antagonism without ignoring class? Or by its very nature, is race meant to obfuscate class? Because you talk about these class collaborationist projects, and I was wondering if maybe white supremacy is an intentional logic that rationalizes the domination of the wealthy over all of us. Does white supremacy legitimize the oppression of even white supremacists by the rich? Well, it's interesting. What, what I say in the book is that settler colonialism, that is to say the process whereby Europeans crossed the Atlantic and invaded indigenous land and set themselves up as the rulers and over time liquidated and ousted the indigenous population, that this involved class collaboration between and amongst poor and richer Europeans. Richer Europeans were the investors, Poor Europeans were oftentimes the foot soldiers. In my 17th century book, I talk about how that comes to a head in 1676 with Bacon's Rebellion, when Nathaniel Bacon in the land that was called Virginia led an uprising against London because he felt that London was not moving rapidly enough to take the land away from the Native Americans. Uh, Even though he was a man of means, he was accompanied by those without means who felt that they had something to gain from getting Native American land, and perhaps with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, they could then get enslaved Africans and then become wealthy and thereby enjoy the so-called American dream. Well, this class collaboration, I dare say, is still with us today. I'm not sure you can explain the election of 2016, that is to say the presidential election, when a faux billionaire is supported by 63 million people. Now, it's mathematically impossible for 63 million voters to be part of the 1% in a nation of 335 million people. Inevitably, there were numerous working class and middle class individuals of European descent who were engaged in class collaboration by voting for an administration whose signature policy would be cutting tax cutting taxes for the wealthy in December 2017, with presumably these 63 million feeling that somewhere down the line, they'll become wealthy too, and therefore they'll be able to benefit from the tax cut. So I think that once again, in order to understand this settler colonial project that is the United States of America, we really have to understand the history, and we really have to move away from the mythology. And I'm afraid to say that the U.S. left although it has attained many victories, oftentimes it's been bogged down in mythology. I think of that when I think of the signature anthem of the U.S. left, which is this land is your land, this land is my land. Well, well, actually, this land is their land. This land is the Native American land. Even the Supreme Court acknowledged that when, at least in principle, they said that half of Oklahoma uh, belongs to Native Americans, which puts the U.S. Supreme Court a right-wing body to the, to the left of a good deal of the so-called U.S. left. So once again, we really have to do a deeper dive into history if we're ever to find a way out of this morass in which we find ourselves. 
to what extent did the settlers from London learn to simply be more brutal than their Spanish counterparts counterparts were to slaves? Was there more to it than sheer brutality? Well, that's an interesting question. One of the points I bring forward is that one of the signal factors that aids the Europeans is the constant internal warfare, for example, in the British Isles, which necessitates the building of an arms industry, which the English can then wield against the Irish and the Scots, and then ultimately perfect that machinery to use against the Africans and the indigenous of the Americas. Now, what's interesting about Spain is that they too have internal conflict, but recall that what was happening in Spain for hundreds of years leading up to 1492 was a significant occupation of the Iberian Peninsula by Muslims and Arabs. And so a lot of their warfare was against the so-called other, whereas the warfare in the British Isles was against, at least today, we would see as those who were, they were Christians, and of course, uh, until uh, the 1530s, uh, they were all Catholics. But I think that the, the one of the differences, however, and this is something that's in the book and that we really need to focus on, is how th- there's few, there are few things more deadly than religious conflict. And in the run-up to the Londoners crossing the Atlantic, they were enmeshed in a ceaseless cycle of conflicts between English Protestants and Irish Catholics in particular. And these conflicts were so murderous that it's easy to see how and why those murderous tactics and strategies honed against the Irish, then crossed the Atlantic and were used to diabolical means, with diabolical means against the indigenous population, the African population. And you point out that uh, conquerors bold their, these conquerors, these white conquerors, bold their way into indigenous settlements, murdering all they encountered, including small children, old men, pregnant women, especially pregnant women. They hacked them mercilessly, slicing open their bulging bellies with their sharpened swords with macabre intensity. They grabbed suckling infants by the, their feet, ripping them from their mother's breasts, dashing them headlong against the ground. There were holocaustic levels of slaughter and enslavement, asserts scholar Matthew Restall with accuracy, speaking of Mexico in words that are hardly unique to this territory. We're taught that genocide, and it's not called a genocide, but we're taught that it was caused by germs, by invasive animal species, uh, other than Europeans, that is, that it was all some sort of horrible mistake caused by unknowing people desperate to get out from under a monarch. However, something that is holocaustic suggests it was far more intentional. To what extent was the European invasion and its apocalypse that was set upon both indigenous and Africans intentional, and how much was it all a big mistake that happened to be fortunate for Europeans? (laughs) <laughs> well, I would say it's more the former than the latter, um, which is one of the reasons why you still have rationalizations of it. And that's part of the problem in the United States, because if you can rationalize genocide and mass enslavement, you can rationalize just about anything. In fact, if you can rationalize genocide and mass enslavement, in some ways, you're paving the way for future genocide and future mass enslavement. I mean, that's the irony of of U.S. history in the sense that 
even those who consider themselves to be progressive, oftentimes engage in this rationalization process, which I dare say might come back to bite many of them. But in any case, we do know that, yes, viruses and microbes did play a role in terms of the devastation, not least of the indigenous population, but it would be an error to elevate viruses and microbes over projectiles and bullets in terms of explaining the devastation of the indigenous population, the enslavement of the Africans. Uh, it would be a mistake to downplay fire because fire was not only a frequent tactic used by the enslaved, it was also a frequent tactic used by the settlers to rout the indigenous population. That is to say, just burning down their entire villages, their entire village, and watching human beings turn into ashes and embers. We all know, well, at least many of us know, about how during the middle of the 18th century, you had the notorious Lord Amherst, for which the college in Massachusetts and the city in Massachusetts of the same name is known, Amherst, Massachusetts, Amherst College, and how he helped to circulate the germ-written blankets amongst Native Americans to ensure that they would go to the great beyond or certainly go six feet under. So we've had a lot of scholarship in, in recent years that's upended this mythology that basically suggests that viruses and microbes help to explain a European dominance. Uh, I would say that it's generally due to these projectiles already made reference to and to fire, and also this creative adaptation whereby those who are warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scots, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, all of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, they're rebranded in a way that would make Madison Avenue blush into this new identity politics called whiteness, a militarized identity politics as that. One of the things that you point out, and I cannot... I, I don't want to not mention this because it just fascinates me. You write, the deadliness of the resultant apocalypse commenced virtually from the day Columbus reached terra firma in October 1492. In the decades immediately following, an estimated 650,000 indigenous were enslaved. And in 1580, so this is 39 years before 1619, in 1580 in Algiers, enslaved indigenous from the Americas were to be found. Not even a hundred years after Columbus, the people that have come to be unfortunately called Native Americans instead of a more accurate term like Native peoples were being exported to Africa to become slaves. What happens when we erase that history, when we only see the U.S. slave trade as a one-way trade of Africans being imported to the U.S. and not one of a transatlantic trade that even enslaved indigenous people, a demographic that most people in the United States today do not associate with centuries of slavery? Well, I think it sheds light on what happened in Grant Park in Chicago days ago when you had enraged protesters trying to bring down a statue of that very same Christopher Columbus and were being beaten back furiously by Chicago's finest, referring to the police department. Uh, that is to say, when people finally learned the truth, a truth that had been shrouded when they were in school, I think it, it enrages them. It infuriates them. It moves them to impulsive action. 
And you are correct. You can find indigenous DNA all over the world because what happens is that the settlers, in addition to liquidating the indigenous population, oftentimes uh, send them to faraway slave markets, faraway slave markets in the Caribbean, faraway slave markets in uh, Algeria, because Algeria um, for the longest was one of the most substantial slave markets on, on planet Earth. They could be so, sold to slave markets in uh, Ottoman Turkey. Um, their DNA can be found uh, all over the world. It is really one of the major crimes against humanity. And certainly, uh, I would like to see our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, walk in the footsteps of their comrades in the black community and demand reparations uh, from the successor regime in London and in Washington, because there's no statute of limitations with regard to crimes against humanity. Uh, that is to say, there are some crimes uh, after seven, 10 years, the prosecutor will not be able to bring a charge for, because of these statutes of limitations. With regard to crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, there are no statutes of limitation. And certainly the question of what befell the indigenous population of North America, not least in Illinois, is a prime example of a crime against humanity. One last question for you, Gerald. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of the new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is Gerald's third appearance on our show. You can hear all of our interviews with Gerald by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on the name Horn, H-O-R-N-E. In 2018, when he was on to discuss his book, White Supremacy Confronted, that book was named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on this is hell. Uh, that was in 2019. And then in 2018 as well, when he was on to talk about his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that book was also named as one of the favorite books to be discussed on This Is Hell that year. So he's going for a three-peat. One last question for you, Gerald, and it is, as you know, or might remember, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's where this answer is going to be found. You write the heralded religious liberty that characterized the Republican secession in the late 18th century, coincidentally followed by a uh, followed, uh, sorry, coincidentally allowed for a pan-European mobilization to crush rebellious Africans and indigenous alike. How was freedom of religion weaponized against Africans and the indigenous? Well, first of all, of course, freedom of religion, like most of the vaunted and fabled Bill of Rights, did not apply to Africans and indigenous. So for example, the fabled Second Amendment with regard to the right to bear arms, uh, no, that did not apply to the Indians and the Negroes, for sure. And likewise, with regard to religious liberty, likewise, that did not apply to the Indians and the Negroes either, because their religions were deemed to be inferior and were therefore worthy of being wiped out and stamped out and, of course, you had those like the Cherokees, for example, who used to occupy a significant amount of territory in the southeast quadrant of what is now the United States of America. And they converted to Christianity. Uh, they welcomed Christian missionaries. Uh, they started dressing like the settlers. Uh, they printed newspapers. In fact, I, I draw up on some of their newspapers in the Cherokee language and the English language in the book at hand. Uh, but they still had to go. I mean, uh, Andrew Jackson, Mr. Trump's favorite president, 
uh, engineered the Trail of Tears, which forced them to uh, evacuate. That is to say, a, a process of ethnic cleansing. And they had to move to Oklahoma, where supposedly that was going to be their land as long as the river shall flow and the grass shall grow. But in any case, the First Amendment basically caused a ceasefire with regard to religious conflict between and amongst Europeans. Recall what we had talked about moments ago uh, concerning uh, Irish Catholics versus Protestant Londoners, for example, or Protestant or Christian Londoners versus uh, Jewish populations in England that were forced to evacuate in 1291. Well, what happened with the First Amendment is that there's a kind of ceasefire, a truce, with regard to those religious conflicts, and that truce was necessary in order to continue moving west, having enough soldiers to make war against the Native Americans and having enough settlers to then occupy their land and enough warm bodies to then overwhelm the indigenous and the Africans alike. So once again, I think that the scholars of the so-called Enlightenment uh, have thrown dust in the eyes of the population by presenting to you this fairy tale about so-called religious liberty, when actually it was much more of a crass and pragmatic maneuver. But we all know that that kind of religious liberty oftentimes uh, was not observed. You had burning of uh, Catholic convents in the Northeast of the United States as late as the 1830s. We all know about the long history of anti-Semitism. But we also know that uh, many who made it across the Atlantic, despite those difficulties I've just enumerated, felt that they had a better shot in the United States of America. But once again, it wasn't necessarily because the United States of America was more progressive or enlightened. It was because the United States of America had a more formidable internal problem in terms of routing the indigenous population from their land and keeping the Africans in check. And therein rests the so-called secret to the, quote, American dream, unquote. Gerald, that's why I love having you as a guest on our show. That's why we keep naming your books as our favorite to be featured on the show, both in 2018, 2019. I have a feeling we're going to be doing it again this year. Thank you so much for being back on and quit writing such in interesting books, will you? I'll try. <laughs> the pandemic has put me in dry dock. All right. Well, take care. And it's great to hear your voice again. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show in the very near future. Thank you for inviting me. Always. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. It's really not that hard. This is hell. This week's question from hell is what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com. And clicking on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. We're going to be naming the winner of this week's question, or this the uh, medical face mask on Thursday's show, right after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. Alex, do you have any listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh yeah, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? Dan T says, two hundred forty dollars worth of pudding. Jesus. Ronaldo M says aliens. Pete oh, V says okay. duct tape. At least so, it wasn't your mom. Yes. Uh, Joshua L. says the return of the gathering of the Juggalos. <laughs> Andrea J. says a giant meteor hitting Earth will finally bring equality to us all. Oh, yeah. Louis D. says let's have hush puppies with them. Oh, I love hush puppies. Uh, you ever go to fish keg? Oh, God, I love them. Get them extra well done. 
Oh, God. I didn't know you could have. There were oh, variants yeah. in uh, oh, doneness yeah. of hush puppies. Yes. Uh, what will finally unite the left? Wally R says, no anchovies or pineapple on pizza ever. Nope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shane M says, death, the ultimate expression of democracy. Hmm. Aaron D says, fear of a black planet. <laughs> Badger N says, Roger Stone's release party. <laughs> what? Uh, Richard L says, falafel. <laughs> uh, no WW says, that Soma guy. Chuck T says, or Jeremy T says, Chuck's use of overly simplistic avocado-loving stereotypes conveyed via imagery of the elitist dining experience were coming for you, Chuck. <laughs> what? Avocados? Rayo says, falafel? Really? This is because uh, I couldn't think of what would actually unite the left for the image that I always <laughs> post on these things. So I posted, I just like, what does everyone like? So I just post a picture of falafels. Whenever it's something that I don't understand the response to, I always kind of should just figure it has to do with the image that you share. Jack W says, a hash brown and spirits fusion brunch restaurant called <laughs> Dictatorship of the Proletato Terrier. Oh, man. Jack. Jeez. I'm, rep- I'm reporting this guy. Wow. Uh, Terry C says, winning and thus putting the right <laughs> back on the back foot. David Z says, a chain gang. Lisa B says, unlimited free breadsticks. Dribal Y says sectarianism. Huh. Dan O says the movement to return the beefy Fritos burrito to the Taco Bell dollar menu. A couple more. What will finally unite the left? Aja H says being locked up in the same place. It's <laughs> probably my vote for that one. Uh, Dan K says annihilation. Garrett S says the sweet eternal release of death. Jacob H says potlucks. Kevin R says the right. Finally, Stephen S says a general understanding that liberalism and liberals are right winged. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of a This Is Hell face mask Thursday after Jeff Dorton in the Moment of Truth. You can see that mask right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, real excited to have Brendan Connor, who was on the show a couple years ago, back on to talk about his new baffler piece, The Accelerating Gyre. Gyre, G-Y-R-E, Gyre? Gyre, Gyre, it's pronounced either way, but most people are saying Gyre now. Okay, the accelerating Gyre, the American right wants to get on with the cleansing fire. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. By the way, tune in tomorrow's show again, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and then it's going to be posted as a podcast around 2 o'clock Chicago time, as all of our shows are. And you tomorrow on the show, you'll hear more of your answers to this week's question from Mel. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Gerald Horn for returning to the show. This really is an amazing book. And his book in 2018, book in 2019, book in 2020 make a great trilogy on settler colonialism uh, that you definitely have to read. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is Hell. Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.